let's, uh, let's go over to the left to Luke chapter 12. And I'm going to use this, kind of what Jesus had to say, and then we're going to look at some terms that we need to be familiar with. We're going to look at a couple Old Testament uh, passages that, that speak of why we also would direct our attention and be aware of what's happening in Israel. And when I speak of Israel, I'm not saying Israel as we know it contemporarily is right with God. I'm speaking of Israel biblically and historically. Because Israel right now is not really, they're not seeking Jehovah, Yahweh. They're not seeking their God. For the most part, you don't see it. They're, a, they're what we would think of as, as see by accurate measure, a secular nation. But they're Israel. And so even though they have their own little agenda in the leadership, God has his direction for the nation. And so we're going to see some things there. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says, Let your ways be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master, when he will return from the wedding, that he, when he comes and knocks, they may, be, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what the, what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 40, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, well, why would that be? Well, there's a healthy thing to that, interestingly enough. When you live at a time when you're maybe tempted, or you, you, you want to do right with the Lord, you want to live spiritually, you want to feed the Spirit, you want to grow, as the Bible would instruct us to. But then there's this flesh part, too, that would rather just go do this, and rather be you know, off doing other things, but yet I don't want to be here. And he's just saying, just be ready. It's just healthier to be ready. It, it, you know, if you knew... When somebody's coming home and you knew you were supposed to have the house, Kim went on a retreat recently. I knew when she was coming home. I was pretty positive she wouldn't be home Saturday night. I was kind of really sad. I was pretty sure she wouldn't be home early Sunday. So I have time to get things ready. And I know it's a weird example, but you see what I'm saying? It's just like, I, I, there's just a real basic thing. We get it. Oh, hey, the deadline's looming. Well, what he is saying here is just always be ready. Love for God compels us to look for God. A desire to have to know him and to see him causes us to be looking for him. And so he wasn't being secretive or trying to get us guessing. It's a mindset of the relationship of love. When you love someone, you look forward to them. And he's saying, just always be ready, because guess what? I can get distracted, you can get deceived, we can get drawn off course. Fairly simply. And he's saying, just always be ready. Keep your mind, you know, on the aware, be, be aware of, of who he is. Let's look over the same chapter. Luke 12, verse 54. Then he also said to the multitude, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there it is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it you do not discern this time? Do you see it was so rebuke of saying listen you know you can you can you see things consistently in probability in regards to weather or certain things you know and 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 you can read that but you won't put effort thought 
awareness into the age and the day you live in. What was the age and the day that this was being addressed? The Messiah was among humanity. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They, they crucified him. Because they didn't, they weren't watching, they weren't looking. They really didn't, you know, when he spoke to them, they didn't go, man, this, these are words of life. We're told that they're words of life later. We're told by those who did follow him. But the masses, the majority, they were, they maybe, maybe the bigger groups probably wanted a loaf of bread and some fish, according to what the Bible tells us. They were looking for something for the the natural appetites and not the spiritual. And and I want to say, you don't just do it on your own, but you do choose. I, we choose, as Paul said, I, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. And what he was talking about there, he just recognizes his appetites. He recognizes his tendencies, and he chooses to, like, I'm going to watch and be ready. I'm going to choose to be alert and attentive. I'm going to do the best I can do when he's building tents or when he's learning and reading or whatever he's doing with this conscious awareness that God's returning at any moment. It's actually a very healthy and liberating way to live. So... Now let's consider what Jesus said, what the New Testament says, what the Old Testament says. All these, they they merge, they converge, and there's a a video out. It's uh, The Coming Convergence, I think, is the name of it. And so it it looks at many of these different uh, prophecies and just shows you that one on its own doesn't tell you everything. Another one over here... It, it seems to be somewhat complimentary, but understand they're not going like this. They're going like this. And there's this convergence and the coming together. And so Jesus said he would return for his bride, the church, and then he would return with his bride. So let's consider a few terms we should know. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can make a note of a couple of these. We're not going to go to them. I'm just going to reference them. But we have the rapture of the church. You'll find that in First Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 17, primarily the word caught up, it's harpazo, it's translated to Latin rapturos, and it literally means snatching away suddenly. A transliteration of rapturos would be rapture. So your, your Bible won't say rapture per se, it may just say, it will probably say caught up, but that's what's being conveyed. So the rapture... Uh, yeah, I won't, I'll start to ask, but it's just too awkward for everybody. You know, so if you have any questions about the rapture of the church, after I'm done tonight, I'd love to chat with you more. Because it's an important term to know, because it's really him coming for his church. Coming in the clouds, and, and really at, the, at the, the twinkling of an eye, I, I believe there'll be a, a horn, a, a, a trumpet sound. And like that, his people, the church, will be caught up be with him, and we'll talk about that later. Now, in regards to the millennial reign, people talk about the millennial reign. Uh, It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, speaks of this thousand years, which is what millennium means, so a thousand year reign and rule of Jesus with the church. So so when does that take place? Because there's views on when this will happen, you know. Uh, And it kind of, I'll use it in reference to the rapture of the church, there's um, amillennial. Amillennial means no millennium, basically. They don't believe in it. They, they believe that that phraseology and um, the wording in uh, Revelation is actually allegorical, so you don't apply it literal. 
which is a very challenging perspective because how do you get to pick and choose which parts you apply literally and which parts you apply allegorically? And so um, the post-millennial view, so post-millennial would mean the rapture would take place after the millennium. The church will improve, the church will overcome the world, it will usher in the millennial reign, and then Jesus will return visibly and personally after the millennium. And I, I don't spend a lot of time on these because literal interpretation of Revelation 21 through 7 leaves you with a premillennial view concerning the rapture. Premillennial. So prior to the millennium, because of what we see in the, uh, the wording of Revelation 20 and other passages, Jesus will he'll, he'll return in the clouds for his church. So that's a premillennial rapture view. He's going to take away the church, caught up, rapturus, and when's he going to do it? Before the millennial reign. So it's a premillennial rapture perspective, which is what our, 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 our leadership, our church here, what was we hold to. So the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, great tribulation takes place. Jesus returns with the church, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, and the thousand years begin. Which means there's another word we want to know. We've considered the rapture, we've considered the millennial reign, and we want to consider the great tribulation. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation, right? And so, but that tribulation there, if you want to see it in simplicity, is a small case T, tribulation. It's not speaking of a specific event. It's speaking of in this world you will have trials. You'll have difficulty. You'll have challenges. So you will have tribulations. But the, the event, the great tribulation, is a specific time. It's a seven-year period where the wrath of the Lamb is poured out. We know that from Revelation 6, verse 17. We'll look at that later. It's a terrible time like has never been on the earth. It's referred to as just, it's this time that such has never been. So, the end time events. We have the second coming of Christ for his church, and then later coming with his church, with a whole lot in between these two events. Now, I think what's healthy among believers is to work these things through. I think what's problematic is when we become too absolute, too definitive. Oh no, this has to happen before that. And this Ezekiel 37 thing has to happen before this, and then this happens out there, and then that can only happen after Ezekiel 38 and before 39, and, and people get really divisive over these things. I'm just going to say, this is what's going to happen. All of it. It's all going to happen. It's all going to happen. So let's not get to the point where we argue. And, you know, I was just talking, and Kim and I were chatting, and, and just looking at things, and, and even knowing of a person who recently um, committed their life to Christ. They got baptized. They were a very outspoken influencer, and young, under 30. And it was the church that criticized this person the most when they made the, their posts about their new faith. It was the church. They didn't baptize right. They weren't wearing, they didn't do the right thing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It, the church is the one that's always, it seems to be like the enemy gets in and, and it's usually those that are around longer that argue more, more definitively. Instead of being more compassionate and go, man, I'm so glad this person is starting this journey with Jesus Christ. 
and said, oh, you know, you know, we'll wait and see. I've heard that so many times when we do a baptism. Somebody will try to word it, but their heart's saying, we'll just wait and see. I don't think it's legit. I don't think they're going to follow the Lord. Well, with your help, probably not. You know, maybe you should be someone who comes alongside them, not standing off going, well, let's just see, Mr. Pharisee. Anyway, so hopefully that's not you, not somebody online. It was just somebody hypothetically living in Zimbabwe. So, prophecies tell us what's to come. God's word in a given situation. God's word concerning the days to come. There's a big word for it. It's called eschatology, those things to come in the end. And so, we know these are, are going to happen. We can discuss the chronology, hopefully respectfully. But what about the times and seasons, you know, specifically concerning Israel? What do we look for? Uh, I'd encourage you to read about you read in Ezekiel 37, we won't touch it tonight, speaking of dead bones brought to life. Can this happen? Can this be? And many commentators, most scholars, you know, see that that is speaking of even Israel being brought back. And just God doing this work that's beyond the natural. Uh, Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah 66. In Isaiah 66, verses 8 through 10, this is what we call a, well, I like to think of it, I don't know who else calls it this, but a super prophecy. So in Isaiah 66, verse 8, we read, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery? Says the Lord, shall I cause, shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb? Says the Lord, or says God. Rejoice with the Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for her, for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. So it's basically, in a nutshell, we see this conveying: Can a nation be born at once? Well, we know. Well, you could say, yeah, it could be like all at once. It could just like gather, but then you go, well, a village, a group, a mass, then a nation. But up until 1948, no one really knew the fulfillment of this prophecy. If you were reading your Bible in the, in the well, we have to say we go back into the 30s and 20s, you really wouldn't even be contemplating this. For over 1900 years, Israel has not been a nation. So you wouldn't be thinking of this as, an, how would I apply this to, for Israel? But Israel regathered, the people came back, the nation is formed and recognized, and and it's a significant point on the prophetic calendar because it fulfills this prophecy, which we know they had been dispersed from uh, about uh, roughly around 500 BC up till 1947. They had been scattered, you know, scattered about Babylonian captivity and then on through, you know, even with the, the, the Roman presence in the various nation or, or empires. And so it's a significant thing. We know that because that's why I find very special about our, uh, our times. We are living in the time when the nation Israel was regathered. I mean, 2,000 years almost had went by. And now they have been brought back together. Significant reference point because we can look at it and, and see what's going on. Uh, I won't met, I'll just mention this one. You can look to it. I've already mentioned Ezekiel 37. I would suggest reading Ezekiel 37 through 39. You're reading prophecy. So you just kind of read, pray, and go, okay, Lord, help me kind of see this and process this. But it speaks of 
in Ezekiel 38 of these nations north of Israel coming against Israel. It's referred to as the Gog and and Magog alliance. Um, And it really just speaks of these other nations that will join in and they will invade Israel. It will happen at a time of peace and prosperity in Israel. Chapter 39 tells us that Israel in this final battle will be functionally on their own and God will be the one who delivers them. So you're going to watch and be ready, which is a very interesting thing if you think about it. If we're living, you know, in this time of uh, the nation coming to life, and we are, and so then there's these other things going to happen. But in the end, when the invasion from the north comes, with probably from Syria, uh, Persia in the Bible is what we know as Iran. And so when this invasion comes, Israel has no allies. Are we an ally of Israel? We are. I, I have spoken, you know, I think pretty clearly. I, I think most people would tilt and guess I might be more conservative than liberal. Just wondering. You might just guess that. Just out of curiosity. But there's an interesting thing that happened. The current administration has actually stepped up and, 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 and showed up with the second aircraft carrier coming into the Mediterranean and, and physical presence and commitment like we've really honestly never seen. Pretty fascinating, because I just never thought you'd see it. Because in the past, previous administrations that were more liberal in their leaning had a great conversation. Well, I'll just quit making it complicated. Obama spoke really good and did nothing as an ally. He was very fluent, very articulate, spoke, hey, you know, rah, 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 go team, go, we got you. They just did nothing undermine the relationship far more than support it. No physical presence and stuff. So it's interesting because now here, which would typically be when you're just the puppet of the Obama, previous guy, whatever, that you just would do what you was done before, but uniquely something. I, don't, I haven't figured this one out. I just, I'm curious. But I, I really would be amiss, and I would be untruthful. I didn't bring it up. Say, man, they have really this administration. Of course, you have a lot of... Uh, people with Jewish identification uh, in the in the or in our current cabinet, uh, Blinken, I think, is one of, of course as well. So anyway, all I'm saying is where I'm going with this is, well, how do we fit in this end times picture if we are a good ally of Israel, cutting loose some cash and showing up with some bullets and boats? So we're doing something, but it says that there won't be any ally, there won't be any significant presence in this final battle. So it means we become insignificant. We're either so closely aligned with Israel that we're, we're, we're not mentioned, which you'd have to be in this fulfillment of prophecy, you'd have to be not only closely aligned, but almost insignificant concerning power and ability. No one's going to say, oh, it was the U.S. and Israel that threw off the Gog and Magog invasion. The Bible says very clearly no one gets the credit but God alone, because it's obvious to the enemies and it's obvious to Israel that God is the one that will accomplish this. So we have that on the horizon. Watch and be ready. Don't get drawn into it too much as far as where we're at and all that, but um, it just doesn't look like we'll be around. And I don't mean that we get raptured out. I think that's possible. I just think we can become economically and militarily insignificant. And if things keep unfolding, because I don't know if some of you thought about this, but we're on the brink of the Third World War. 
China has, has a peace delegation supposedly coming in. The talks with the other Arab nations were broke off today because of this uh, particular explosion at a hospital. Um, Iran is just an instrument that uh, Russia uses. And so the, another prophecy that's very interesting is if you turn with me from Isaiah 66 to Isaiah 17. In Isaiah 17, verse 1, the burden or oracle, against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Damascus will cease from being a city. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And it will be no more. Uninhabitable. A ruinous heap. This has not happened yet. Where's Damascus? Syria. North of Israel. The southern border of Syria is currently being bombed by Israel. Um, northeast Israel borders Syria. Uh, Damascus has not yet been destroyed. But Syria currently has Russian and Iranian troops within their borders. So do you see how this is, this is more global than, than I think sometimes we, we realize? Um, in Ezekiel 38, it speaks of this Russian-led attack on Israel. And at the end of the last days, which I believe, you know, it could happen even before the rapture. Or it may, the rapture may be one of those upheavals that, you know, it kind of causes so much just upheaval and everything economically and everything. It could be interesting. It could start it. But a Russian leader will form a military alliance with Syria and other countries will come against Israel. Why do I reiterate that again? It's been 2,500 years since this Ezekiel prophecy about Russia and Syria have been, but they have been enemies until 1940. 1940, they ended, entered into a, an alliance and have actually been working together. So I don't know, sometimes we don't realize the history behind all this. So, you know, all these years, 2,000 years, enemies, and now, coincidentally, just a few years before Israel as a nation, 1948, and this is unfolding. In 2016, Russia spearheaded a military takeover of Aleppo. You may be reading about Aleppo. Um, it's uh, it's uh, Aleppo's uh, largest Syrian city outside of Damascus. Um, well, it's the largest Syrian city before the Syrian war, which was 2012 to 2016. In about 2016, Russia took control of Aleppo, and then the focus shifted to persuading Damascus to allow the Russian influence. So what you, persuading is interesting in global politics. If persuasion doesn't work, military force will. And so the reason I mentioned Aleppo, Israel bombed Damascus and Aleppo airports. It made them inoperable because a lot of the problems were coming from that direction. And so um, there's just so much going on. Damascus is 40 miles from the Golan Heights. If you hear that term, the Golan Heights, uh, Kim and I were able to be in Israel just recently, the last couple of few years, I guess. And uh, at one point, we were able to look across to the Golan Heights. And from the Golan Heights, you have a clear view of troop movements and activities clear to Damascus. It's the high ground. So when you hear that talked about, people are like, well, yeah, man, I don't know how you are, but whatever, I don't know what they're talking about. Then you start studying and go, man, this is very interesting. Signs of the time, watch, be ready. But also, don't be too definitive. Don't be, oh, that means this. Okay, because I've seen this, and then this has happened, now this is a fulfillment of this. Just watch and be ready. 
Let it unfold, have wisdom, because can we agree that's the error many make when they study prophecy? They attach something contemporarily that isn't a fulfillment of the prophecy. It's a part in the bigger picture. Some of us said, is this what we're seeing now, a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? No and yes. No, not a specific one that we could say definitively. But yes, we see this convergence, this coming together of these various prophecies. And I believe the next significant event is the removal of the church, the catching up, the, the taking away his bride in this event called the rapture. Um, as I mentioned, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. You can see it again in chapter 5, verse 9, when he says his bride is not appointed to wrath. And so with the pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture physician, recognize that God uses relational terminology. Does that make sense? I mean, he, he calls you know, his people, he, like for humanity, for you know, husbands and wives, he speaks of the bride. The church, we are his bride. It's a terminology that God chose to convey that the church is his bride because that's the closest, most intimate relationship in humanity that we could relate to. It would be strange to put your bride through your wrath when she's been redeemed, forgiven by you. Because some actually hold that the church will go through the tribulation period. But is the tribulation God's wrath? According to Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, after the sixth seal judgment, still have the trumpet and bowl judgments to come, people hid themselves in the mountains and the rocks and they said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand it? So it's clearly the wrath of the Lamb. If we consider, we'll bring it up on projection, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and build one another up, just as you also are doing. And so these are some passages I just referenced that give a strong indication relationally. What God's communicating to us is that he will remove the church before the wrath, before the seven-year tribulation period. Imagine what happens when literally millions upon millions of people are removed all at once. Every nation, every tribe, all across the planet, it just what that does to uh, uh, business structure, what it does to economic structure, what that does to political structure, what it does to international allegiances and alliances, what it does to family structure. Everything's going to be in upheaval. It seems to me, and this is just my own thought and, and consideration, it's just, it'll be such a time for someone to rise up and be the rescuer. Someone who seems to have power, seems to have ability, seems to have a, a reputation of dying and coming back to life. He's pretty amazing antichrist. And then and, and there's this opportunity now to now lead the world, which, of course, everybody's gathering around. And So let me just do a, a quick review before we close out on a, a passage. <clears throat> Church is raptured. The world in chaos, beginning a seven-year period. It's what we could consider to be the final week of Daniel. If you know the book of Daniel, if you're not sure of it, read Daniel chapter 9, and you'll see this reference of this, this final seven-year period. Humanity 
is in an intermission. We're, um, we're in a parenthesis. So he speaks of these other uh, weeks to come, and then there's this pause before the last seven-year period. And we're inside the parenthesis before this seven-year final period will come. So, seven-year period. Nations will rise against Israel. That's Ezekiel 38 and 39, Magog and their allies. The Antichrist is going to appear. I personally believe the Antichrist very probably is on the planet now, but not publicly proclaimed, not, 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 uh, not in that position of power. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scheming and a strategy in the spiritual realm, and he hasn't been made known. But the Antichrist will make a treaty with Israel, and then there'll be the break of a treaty because the Antichrist will go into the newly rebuilt temple and then he will declare himself to be God. It's actually referred to in Daniel as an abomination that brings about desolation. Because you know some have said it already happened, but it doesn't fit the picture. But he'll come in at the three and a half year mark and, and basically the Jews have made a deal with him. And then he'll come in and, and he'll desecrate the temple and they'll realize, oops, We've made a horrible error. Actually, even told it. I think, but they'll flee to Petra. But breaks this treaty with the abomination that brings desolation. Um, at the end of the seven years, Christ returns with the church. He returned for the church. The seven-year period is taking place. He'll return with the church. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. That's that millennial reign. Satan will be released at the end of the thousand years. There'll be this final battle where he will then be cast into outer darkness for eternity. The followers of Satan will be judged at the great white throne judgment. Jesus and his bride, the church, will be together in what's known as the new heaven and the new earth, described in Revelation 21 to the end of the chapter. So, I have to finish with the scripture where it sets us with the right mindset. So turn with me to Revelation chapter I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2. I'm going to do somewhat of a read-through and touch briefly on it. We've got just a few minutes left. So it sets itself up. We've looked through this. We've got to this point. And so now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's what I was just referring to. Now as you read through this, you go, okay, so this says that that day won't come until the falling away. There's some thought of consideration of what that means, and it, it probably is referring to this falling away, this, this even greater rebellion of humanity towards God. But that day, Eileen, that day is speaking of his second coming, which we could call the third, so to speak. The first was what? For, for a purpose, for the church, in the clouds, for the church. And that day of judgment, that day usually is speaking of not just a, a minute and an hour and a 24 period. It's a dispensation. It's a time frame. And I believe it's that those times will come, that final day when he returns from, you know, unless the following way comes first, the man of sins revealed. That's just where we know that the uh, Antichrist will be revealed. 
And then we see what he'll do, the son of perdition. Do you not remember, I'm in verse 5, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Well, who is he? What could this possibly be? Who's the restraining one? Well, we know that from uh, study of Scripture and what Jesus said about the Paracletos, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, that He is the restraining one. He's the force and presence. And how's He how's He manifest Himself? How's He how's He restrain through the church? Through the church, we we are, the Holy Spirit indwells you and me. He leads us. He empowers us. He strengthens us. He accomplishes God's purpose in and through us. And so we are actually a restraining presence in, this, in the world today when we're walking in the Spirit. It's not that we're telling people, no, don't do that, but we're, in our presence, you just, they just see something different. They realize, and, and there is literally like verbal engagement. There's other means by which we, we fight the good fight of faith, that we're led by the Spirit. We're, we're restraining evil in this world. What would it be like if the, all the restraint is removed? Well, It's horrible. You can't even, how, how, how evil could people possibly be to one another? Gaza, right now. That's just a hint, and I don't think that's the extreme. I think it's actually, the people can be even worse, obviously. So, goes on to say, in verse uh, 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the, mouth of his, with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they do not receive, did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. People just rejected the gospel, continue to reject it. And you notice there's a, a characteristic, a, a glimpse of his methods and his strategies, signs and lying wonders. It is a wonder how many lies are propagated and promoted that are obviously lies, and yet they're readily received as, a, as oh, no, that's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe that. There's people marching, protesting all over this planet, and they're claiming free Palestinians, free Palestine. We, we, we line with Palestine. You need, Palestine needs to be free from Hamas, Hamas has brought all the horror, all the terrible stuff on them. Hamas is just an organization that functionally took over this Palestina, which is actually—I don't have time to get into all this—but you know, it was—it uh, was, uh, gosh, it was the Roman uh, ruler Hadrian who, to squelch an uprising with. Um, the, the Israelites in 135, I believe it was, A.D. So Hadrian squelches this, and then to, to kind of get back and to really rub their nose and dishonor the Jews, he no longer called it Israel. He called it Palestina, Latin, Philistines. See, it was because their perennial enemy, the Philistines, and so he called the land Palestina. From 135 to 1947, it was Palestina for that reason. And what? who lives in Palestina? Palestinians. Israel, Jewish Palestinians or Arab Palestinians up till 1947. In 1947, it was then called what? 
1948, Israel. And guess who owned the land for over 2,500 years? More than that, Abraham was given the land. He was told that this would be his place. Like, it's always been Israel, except for this point when Rome, this Roman ruler in his egocentric attitude said, you know what, I'm going to punish him. And then, then that land was kept. Anyway, bonus, I'm not charging you anything for that one right there. We're just going to keep moving along. There's so many lies out there, because I had to throw that with the lies about... Israel occupying the territory. It's one of the most effective hoaxes that have been presented on humanity. Israel is not occupying. They're, they're, that is their natural land. That is their land. It, it, it's, it's undebatable. Historic, if you don't believe the Bible, you can look at archaeological record. You can look at other things. It's Israel's land. And it's only recently this whole thing's been promoted, this lying wonder about it being they're, they're occupying it. Unrighteous deception. And for this reason, verse 11, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, shall, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God is, 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 is not um, throwing on them so much they can't decide, but God knows they will not turn to him. So that's why he says he'll send a strong delusion. The delusion is a result of rejection. So it's not to, to cause them to reject him. It's really important to understand that because if it's to cause them, delude them to cause them to reject him, they no longer have free will. But they've exercised their free will already and they've rejected him. And the result of that rejection is he then sends this delusion. You know, Pharaoh hardened his heart and hardened his heart. And what did God do? Hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because it's like he put an accelerator into what Pharaoh had already catalyzed. He had already started going that way. He just accelerated the process. So God sends that because you notice they believed the truth. They did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You live in a time where pleasure is promoted at the expense of holiness. Matter of fact, it's presented as holiness being set apart because people just seek sensual pleasure. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So we have here, he chose you. That means he picked you. That means he decided where you're going to go. But then we also keep reading belief in the truth. Where there's predestination, there's always free will. And guess what most people do? One camp or the other. Which one am I? Like, you're both. You have been foreordained by God. He knows the choice you'll make, but you still have the capacity to choose. You'll always see it. When you, you take 2020, 20 verses before, 20 verses after, when you find something that speaks of, say, predestination, and, and you're foreordained, and I mean, it's just, God's just made some people that way. You'll always find a, a direct verse speaking specifically about belief or faith, or you're going to see that the free will of humanity is always intertwined in that, which makes the argument really complicated, correct? Because if you want to say, well, I believe this, I'm reformed, and I believe all of this, and others think, well, I kind of line up over here, and it's all about the choice of man, and you, you go look at the scripture, and you go, yep, it's exactly what it is, both. Both are involved. Both are engaged. Because that makes for a hard argument if you're this camp and this camp and you want to argue. But if you both go, well, you yeah, actually, we're both right, technically. 
there's elements of both the scriptures that both that bring us both together that we can see this. So, once again, a bonus. Verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our closing point. Therefore, st- brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Speaking of, you know, what, this, this church in Thessalonica, what they learned from the Lord. Whether by word or by epistle, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God comforts our hearts in troubling times. God is the one that awakens us. God is the one that stirs us. God is the one that teaches us, hey, this is not home. 